This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Delray Beach, Florida, at the Marriott, right here on the beach. You know, I'm one of those people who, anytime somebody says, don't tear it down, save it, People call me a hoarder. People say, why? What people do for expediency usually angers me. And my next guest knows a little bit about that because there were some schools here they wanted to tear down, and he went in there and saved them. His name is Rob Steele. He's the president of the Old School Square. And we're really talking about elementary schools that date back to what, 1913? 1913. Uh, yeah, you're right. We're a national historic site. But you had to lobby to get that. Absolutely. It happened before my time about 28 years ago, and it was a beautiful process. I, like you, believe that, you know, in the United States, our history is so short, just a couple hundred, 300 years, that we have to be very careful and preserve what we have. When you go to Europe, you can be in a 2,000-year-old building. So yeah, we forget that sometimes. We yeah. forget. So we have to be keen on making sure we take care of it. So 
Uh, now we're going to talk about a couple of buildings, one from 1913, one from 1925. Ab absolutely. Uh, everything came up over the course of that, that decade, roughly. In 1913, they built a building on Atlantic Avenue that, that housed uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. And Talk about one-stop shopping. You know, one-stop shopping. There weren't that many kids around at that point in time. <laughs> so the next year they built a high school. Yeah, your graduating class was four people. Uh, we have pictures to prove it. And <laughs> the basketball team, they all have their hands on the waist of the player in front of them. And it, it's, it's that was really it. Yeah. Historic, historic place. So wonderful campus, five acres, some of the most prime real estate in all of South Florida. Which means everybody wanted to tear it down and build something else. Yeah, it was fenced in and things were kind of rough. Old School Square is considered the, the catalyst for the renaissance of Delray Beach. It really is the, it was the turning point in the history when they decided, let's preserve this and let's do something with it. Let's make it a cultural art center. Yeah. And, and the project started. And a museum. And a museum. Uh, really exciting. The, the building, the, the original 1913 schoolhouse was eight rooms. And when you see the size of the schoolroom and the size of the windows and the high ceilings, it, it's just hard to Im not imagine that kids running through there and, and learning with strict discipline. You you know what strict discipline is. Peter. Which is why I got thrown out of every school I was ever in. What yeah. are you talking about? Essentially. <laughs> yeah. story, by the way. Short tenures. Yeah. For me, it was like, bye-bye. Uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, you had a challenge because the, you know, the developers wanted it, real estate interests wanted it. It wasn't being used for anything at that point, right? Absolutely. Uh, the term saved, by, saved from the wrecking ball is absolutely appropriate here. I mean, they were ready to knock it down and start over and find something else to do with the space. So what was the, you, know, you had to raise money? Had to raise a lot of money. There's a, there's a wonderful woman, we call her the mother of the arts here in Delray Beach, Frances Bork. She's still very active with us at Old School Square. And she stopped it all and came up with a great plan and said, let's do something special here. And Old School Squares received a number of national awards for their, their great work and repurposing those buildings. So you're a cultural center. You're an art museum. You're working on an amphitheater. Working on, we have a what we call the pavilion stage outside. And we've had up to 3,000 people come and see it, enjoy a show there. But we'd like to improve the sight lines and make it a, a year-round outdoor with a retractable sailcloth roof space. So, And from a design perspective, you can do that. We can do that. And I look at it as a singular opportunity to have a, a space where we can bring in A-list talent. We're six blocks from the ocean. You've talked about it already. I mean, there are 80 restaurants within six blocks walking distance of that spot, and, and it really would be a unique place to come and see a show and just enjoy a night or two or three nights for a festival. What are your biggest upcoming challenges? Uh, as it's always ever, money. It's money. Always. As a nonprofit, you're in that, that money chase all the time. Well, you're a uh, fundraiser. Absolutely. We uh, we wear out the knees of our pants all the time looking for money, and so we're, we're, we're getting great municipal support. Everybody's jumping in in the community and helping out. We get good support from the city and the CRA, so that's really helped us make ends meet. But we do a lot of great work. We also have a creative art school on the campus. We have an indoor 323-seat theater. Uh, the fun never stops. We're, we're, we play host to a half a million people a year at Old School Square with a staff of 20. Mostly locals, right? No, uh, I think we draw about 25, 30% of all our audiences from outside Palm Beach County. But I'm saying mostly Floridians. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Toto, I've been feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
My next guest it really surprised me because she's actually a Palm Beach native. I mean, everybody I meet here is not from here. They're all from Long Island. <laughs> They're all from Long Island. Right. But you're actually local. Born and raised. Her name is Charlene Farrington, and she's the director of the Spady Cultural Heritage Museum, which, by the way, if you've never heard of it, you should go check it out because, they're, you know, I, I try to limit myself when I go to any destination to like one museum per per destination because otherwise my eyes glaze over and I go, I can't, I can't absorb it. I can't immerse myself in it. And yours is a special place because it really does, uh, it, it acknowledges, it celebrates African-American history in, in the South. Absolutely. It's a cultural experience here in Delray Beach, one that you can't find very many places. So what makes it different? What makes it different is the customer service. Everyone who comes... I've never heard a museum call itself customer service. I, right? Right? It's a dying art. But everyone who comes to the Spady Museum gets a personal tour. Seriously? Yes. So you have docents there that will take you around? Absolutely. That's very cool. Yes. And our docents love doing it because basically it's just talking with people. It's storytelling. Absolutely. And it's making new friends. So what am I going to learn? You're going to learn about the cultural heritage of Delray Beach, how we got started as a community, who contributed what to the establishment of the community, and what our relationships are like today. All right. Well, let's, let's, you you open the door here. So Mm -hmm. how did you get started? How did Delray, how did Delray Beach get started? Well, Delray Beach is a farming community. So people after the Civil War who were looking for a better way of life came to Florida. It was basically an open peninsula. So people came in, they settled, they established their farms, and they created a community for their families. And what people don't realize, but I'm going to throw it in here, is Florida has the longest growing period from agricultural purposes of any state in the country. Absolutely. The saying goes... I used to think it was California, but it's not. It's not, right. The saying goes that you can stick your toe in the ground here and it'll grow. (laughs) Which explains a lot, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, but bottom line is this is how it got started. Yes, that's, this is how we started. And farming is has always been one of our uh, major crops, our major industry here in Florida. And so we pay homage to our, our legacy of farming. Okay, so that's one of the stories you're telling. Yes. Give me another. Another story is the survival of our settlers coming to South Florida. Uh, many people came from the north. There were a few who came from the Bahamas, and so they f- were familiar with the weather patterns. But most of the people came. What about from, what about Creole? Yes, uh, from Haiti, from the Bahamas, from Jamaica, and from Cuba. Okay, uh, but those who came from the northern states had to learn how to live here because the weather patterns are, can be severe. Uh, so the community in our very early days, contrary to the nation's history drew uh, closer together. It was a close-knit community in our very early days. Because you had to. Because we had to. People had to rely on each other to survive. And the trains? The trains? The trains changed things because the trains not only uh, assisted our farmers in growing their businesses, once the train routes opened up, they had a much wider uh, customer base, but it also started bringing uh, seasonal residents and tourists down. And that's what changed relationships among people here. I mean, my first train trip ever, I think I was eight years old, was with my parents to Florida. Yes. Those and long train rides. They were long. Killer. Oh, oh, my, my God. God. I know. They were. <laughs> yes. I'll tell mm-hmm. you the story that happened. Mm-hmm. We were told one night. It was like a three-day trip. You uh-huh. know? And we were told one night by the conductor, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to let you know that tomorrow at noon, mm-hmm. the train is going to be broken in two. One half is going to go to like you know, Sarasota, and one's going to go to Hollywood, Florida. Oh, beautiful. And so just make sure you're in your right car <laughs> at noon. So at 9 o'clock that morning, my dad said to me, hey, let's go back. My mom was sleeping. Uh-huh. Let's go back to the observation car in the back, uh-huh. and let's, we'll take some photos. Uh-oh. So I'm taking photos. All of a sudden, I see a train coming behind us. They're separating the train at 9 o'clock, not Uh-oh. at noon. 
And oh my God, they're separating the train. And my mom was sleeping. She would end up, so my dad and I were running right. through the train, running through the train. And it was so funny. There was there was a black conductor. Uh-huh. It was almost like in Rochester in the old Jack Benny show. Uh-huh. You can do it, man. You can do it. Run. Can do it. And my dad and I were on the tracks, running on oh the tracks. Oh, my God. We got back up on the train uh-huh. just in the nick of time before uh-huh. it went somewhere else. Uh-huh. And my dad looked at me and said, don't you ever tell your mother what happened. <laughs> And you know Good what? Plan. We never did. That's right. And my yeah. mom was probably listening upstairs in heaven right uh-huh. now, so she knows now, but uh-huh. she didn't know then. That's but that was my first train ride to Florida. Story. Yeah, That's a crazy story. But you do talk about the trains, too. Yes. Right? Yes, we talk about the trains. What's the biggest surprise in that museum that people aren't, that are not expecting it? That our community was close-knit. During the time when our country was segregated and separated and fighting each other, our settlement community here in Delray Beach was very close-knit. Still segregated now, but... Uh, people got along with each other. They understood how much they needed each other. It was a very close-knit community. Still is? Well, not so much. I thought you were going to answer it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but there are organizations in our community, such as the Spady Museum, the Historical Society, and others who are working on that. Because there are lessons to be learned from that history. It is. And so we, we constantly remind people of our history and how we should handle situations... If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. You know, every time I've come to Delray Beach, I've seen the same thing happen. My next guest saw it happen when he used to come home from college. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that is popular. And there's like, you know, we're here on Atlantic Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's basically a two lane road when you think about it because the car is parked. Difficult to find parking. Traffic doesn't move very fast. Uh, you need to get around. You can always walk, but still, you want to get around. Yeah, during the summer, it's hot. You exactly. don't want to get all sweaty. And the man speaking right there is Ryan Spargargan, who's, is it Garen? Spargarin? Spargarin. Spargarin, yes. who's the owner of something called the Delray Downtowner. And for those of you who, who come here, you'll see it. It's not a trolley. There is a trolley. I saw the trolley. Mm-hmm. But it's not the trolley. It's basically, I mean, you don't like me to describe it as a golf cart, but it really is. Yes, it's very similar. It's a six-seater uh, open-air uh, electric vehicle that uh, we take uh, passengers around downtown Delray from the beach until, like, basically a mile, mile in town and about a mile north and south of Atlantic Ave. And how long has it been going on? Over six years now. Right. And it's a service. Yes. Right? And what does it cost? It's for free. Now we're talking. Yes, so exactly. Sh- so the city supports it? At the moment, uh, we're funded through advertising, but we're hoping to actually start working with the city to expand on the current service and also offer other modes of transportation. So I see, I see you guys riding down the street in the golf carts. I can wave you down and hop on? Yes, exactly. But you can also use our app to request a ride. Okay, so like it's an Uber with a golf cart. Yes, but uh, the one thing we're very proud of, and this uh, probably is uh, great for people from out of town that don't know where to go, we have a directory, and so you can pull up the restaurants, cafes, and then within those directories, we actually have the trending locations. So it's like within the last couple of days, we've taken ah, like so 150 people to Salt 7, for example. So like, that's the hot spot. Let's go over there. Let's check it out. In fact, we're going we're gonna to have the, uh, the chef from Salt 7 on the show. Yes, Paul I believe Neiman. so. Yeah. yeah. So that's a trending spot. Exactly. Yes, it is. Okay. What what else is trending out there? Because uh, you're going there. Yes. Yes. You're taking people there. Well, we have Sandbar, which is our uh, exciting, upbeat, um, 
tiki bar on, on the beach. It has sandflowers. It's really cool. So that's a hit on Saturdays and Sundays. Okay. And what else? Um, well, beach Saturdays and Sundays, that's majority of our demand. Uh, if you're looking for uh, restaurants and bars, I would say that um, uh, Rocco's Tacos, for one. El I had lunch there yesterday. Taco Tuesdays, yeah. uh, that, that's the place to be be seen uh we have uh, other kind of gourmet smaller uh restaurants off the avenue up pineapple grove uh and one of the restaurants is the grove also brulee those are good spots to check out and then we have a little local bar up there called third and third they also uh offer uh tapas also a really good spot speaking of bars i suppose you provide a service as a designated driver too exactly we're trying to make the town safer and easier to get around now, do you operate 24-7? Uh, we operate from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., seven days a week. I would think on Fridays and Saturdays you should go to 1 a.m. Yeah, but, you know, 11 p.m. is the, the time we find that we uh, get off the roads and uh, let Uber and Lyft take everybody home because at that time <laughs> everyone's having a lot of fun. And uh, Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Uh, now, give me an idea of the geographic range because you're not going to take me to Miami. No, no. So it's uh, about a mile north and south. Uh, as I said, and then the whole distance of uh, Atlantic Avenue in the, the CBD, which is, you know, the main district uh, downtown. So that's uh, Swinton to the beach. How, how long is Atlantic Avenue? Because it's a long avenue. It's almost a mile. I'd say it's a little short. Yeah. Yeah. You can walk it. Yes, you can. I, I, I walked it yesterday. I loved it. Because mm -hmm. you know, when you walk a place, you see all the little nooks and crannies in the stores. Yes. Yes. And we have a lot of really cool boutiques. You know, uh, women shopping is a big thing. Tons of shoes and all that stuff, you know, and a few things for the men, too. So do you have certain of your customers who will hop on and off your, your downtowner maybe nine times a day? Yes. Yeah, we have some regulars. And, you know, <laughs> starting off in the morning, uh, you know, they... they and head, they've got their routine, don't they? Yes, they do. You know, they head down. They, you know, they start their brunch somewhere. And then we take them uh, down to the beach to hang out at, uh, you know, say, uh, Boston's. And then after that, they head back downtown, uh, you know, to grab the happy hour over at Salt 7 or... Uh, you know, Park Tavern, one of those. So, yeah. And then back home later on if they want to make it uh, make it home by uh, 11 p.m. Yeah, because yeah, that's the witching hour for you. Exactly. Then it turns into a pumpkin and, you know. Then we don't want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm assuming tipping is encouraged? Yes, yes. So uh, drivers uh, work for gratuities. So if you enjoyed your ride, you know, throw them a couple dollars and they're going to be really excited. Exactly. Um, anybody unruly? Yeah. Uh, Every once in a while at the, the end of uh, Sunday Fun Day, yeah, you'll get some uh, unruly people, but uh, for the most part, they, they'll cooperate. What's your most challenging time of the year at the, uh, at the downtown? Oh, well, that would be high season, so that's uh, usually the month of March, and also depending on when Easter falls. So during that spring break time, uh, it is just bustling the whole town, you know. Hotels are overflowing, and everyone's in town visiting, and, you know, vacation rentals are all... You know, Crazy. Up, yeah. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. And my next guest is someone in the interest of full disclosure I've known for over 20 years. Uh, and she's not really from here. She's from, uh, I think, Alexandria, Virginia. But... Uh, we share one thing in common because at one point in her life, she was living in London and going to school there, and her teacher was my aunt. And uh, 
and my aunt, who's still kicking at 92 years of age in London. I'm sure she's going to listen to the show because she listens online when we, when we stream it live. So you can do a shout out to Aunt Gail. Her name, my guest name is Marie Speed, who's the editor of the Delray and Boca magazines. How are you? Hi, Peter. How are you? Happy to see you again. And happy to see you again. You know, I always like to ask the locals, well, you're a local. You've been here how long? Gosh, I've been here 27 years. Wow. And the same magazine. I, I know. It's unheard of. In, in this business? You bet it's unheard of. <laughs> Unbelievable. So you're the best person to ask. How have things changed? Wow. When I first moved here, I mean, people will tell you, you could fire a cannon down Atlantic Avenue. Which is where we are right now. Which is, that's the main drag in Delray. And it was a quiet, sleepy kind of village by the sea. And it took off in about the last 15 years and it keeps accelerating. And now it's this vibrant hot spot in South Florida for dining, entertainment, um, it's sort of too cool for me anymore. I, I don't know if I can go down there on a Saturday night, but people come from Miami to experience Delray because it's artsy. It's, well, that's saying something. Yes, it's very fresh. Um, there's a big arts community, um, great dining, and it has this physical infrastructure that's just unheard of in South Florida. It's one long road that starts at the highway and goes all the way to the beach with tiny, cute buildings, no skyscrapers. It's just full of charm still. No high-rises. Right. How You're probably in the tallest building. We're on the tallest building right now, probably. And we should be, we're, we're seven yeah. stories. That's it. Yeah, and not, yeah, not much taller how did, than that. How did Delray escape the high-rise mania? It's always had a very dedicated um, leadership, both in the planning sense and in the government. So any kind of growth has been really carefully monitored. And it's got several generations of people who've lived here for a long time. And I think that protects it in a way. Unlike a lot of South Florida where everybody's from somewhere else, Delray has a sort of a sense of itself and a history. And it sort of guides its own destiny and, and has so far in a, in a really charming way, I think. You know, it's interesting because people talk about Palm Beach. They don't realize it's, it's the Palm Beaches. Right, right. Right. There's a million little towns up and down the coast. They're all very different. Palm Beach is very different from Delray. Palm Beach is all Lily Pulitzer and Stubbs and Wooten shoes and Rolls Royces <laughs> and all that. Um, and it's fun. It's fun, too. Um, Except when the president's in town, they close off the yeah, streets. Yeah, when you can get to it. Yeah. But Delray is laid back. It's got your surfers. It's got your preppies. It's got fishermen, artists. It's, it's a really fun demographic mix. And in this 20-year period that you've been around even longer, right, uh, what's been the biggest surprise to you about the change that's happened here? I think that it happened so fast. And I, I'm going to sound like the Chamber of Commerce here, and I'm so sorry. Oh, but at least you gave us full disclosure. Go ahead. <laughs> um, unlike a lot of places that got sort of uh, hot overnight, Delray has managed to retain a certain sense of Delrayness. Um, there's other streets in other towns in Fort Lauderdale. I won't mention different towns, and it hasn't ended happily. But Delray, even as it grows, it's still, as you asked me before, it's still sort of is insulated from getting too glitzy or too franchisey or any of that stuff. It's got a very distinct character that it's managed to preserve, and I think that's really tough when you're growing this fast. It is. It is. I mean, the thing is, I'm personally surprised there are no high-rises, quite frankly, and I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised, by the mm -hmm. way. Um, 
And, you know, you do have a traffic problem right now in Delray. I mean, because you've got one street. You know, it's, it's yeah, but people walk and they ride bikes and they take the Del- Delray downtowner. Have you seen those yet? Oh, the bus, that little bus, no, the trolley. It's a trolley, right? That's a trolley, but the downtown are little golf carts that scoot all over town. You just call them up from an app on your phone and they're free. You just tip the guy and he'll take you anywhere. Wow. Yeah, it's fun. He'll take me to Miami? Uh, not no. that far. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you compared Palm Beach to, you know, Worth Avenue and all the upscale this and all the boutiques that, but you have your you have a, a pretty fair share of boutiques here. Oh, yeah, we do. Um, we're a little bit heavy in the dining side now. Yeah, well, um, when I was going down Atlantic Avenue yesterday, I mean, every other building is a restaurant. And it makes sense because the rents are going up and restaurants are the ones who can really well afford those more than, you know, and that that's a struggle that Delray's going through. It's getting so popular that it's becoming a little difficult for the mom and pop places although i went into a mom and pop place yesterday it's been around since 1937 the card store are you talking about hands yes my favorite store oh i love that place you could live there i walked in there are you kidding me i walked in there and i bought stuff i didn't need of course that's what hands is all about and they bought pens and i bought refills it's all flamingos i didn't buy the no they have an art department you can still buy one envelope at hands yes they sell it by one envelope at a time and then you go around the corner they got an entire greeting card division right i mean that we're down to 1956 there i know it's fabulous that that family owns that building and they've been here forever 1937 yeah and they're really fun and that's all i never miss a stop at hands and they have the best (laughs) cocktail napkins in south florida and you would know that because because i go through them so fast (laughs) i don't know how what would you say is the biggest challenge to delray right now um, its biggest challenge is also its biggest driver, and that's the growth. How do you maintain that mom and pop character over time when real estate and rents are escalating so fast? And it's a real balancing situation. So I think that's what we're engaged in now: how to how to preserve that character that we all love with what's happening because it's it's really it's a, it's happening all over South Florida, but. We're trying to manage it as best we can now. Now, in Boca, right, mm-hmm. you do some work with, was it the Murakami Museum? I have been, yes, I've worked with them before. That's the only uh, museum in America dedicated to Japanese culture and gardens. In America? Mm-hmm. And it's here? It's right here. How did gorgeous. that happen? How did that happen? Ah, well, funny you would ask. There was a Japanese colony called the Yamato Colony back in, I want to say, the 30s or 40s. And they were a thriving agricultural colony in Boca. And then pineapple started coming from somewhere else. I want to say maybe Hawaii, the islands. Anyway, they the pineapples went bust. The colony, a lot of them went back to Japan. But one of the people who had a lot of land, George Murakami, donated that land to the city and it became this gorgeous these gorgeous japanese gardens you know they have little meditation gardens are we talking about bonsai too they've they've got everything yeah they've got a tea house they have bonsai they have um the gardens sort of mirror every generation of japanese garden from way back so they're very elaborate to me that's that's a great surprise from this area because you're not expecting it Mm -hmm. amazing and you can actually go visit every day right oh it's wonderful Cool. I got married there once. You got married there once or yeah, twice? I have a Rolodex, Peter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just once. One of them. I, I've got them. I read that police report. <laughs> no, no, just, just kidding. 
Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Yes, they call this a Marriott. Uh, yes, it's got the Marriott name on it. Uh, yes, it's got Marriott on the towels and on the soap and you can name everything you want. But like many hotels that belong to my next guest. It's not managed by Marriott, and they do what they want to do, which is, I kind of like it. Um, his name is Mike Walsh, and he's the president of Ocean Properties. Now, what's interesting about this, Mike, is that how many properties do you guys own? Uh, over, uh, we have over 160 in North America. That makes you the largest privately owned hotel company in America. Probably. I mean, when you think about it, you're not public. There are no shareholders other than you guys. Um, so that means you can really control your properties. You control your product. Uh, yeah, that that's, makes a big difference because the markets are all different that the hotels are in. So, so you can't, be, every, cookie, you can't every, be cookie cutter. Yeah. The cookie cutter doesn't work where all our hotels are. I mean, look, you've got the Marriott here in Delray. You've got a number of hotels here in, in Florida. But then you got hotels in New Hampshire and you got hotels in Maine, which would never you would never think would be like a hotel in Florida because it's not. That, that's right. <laughs> For one thing, most of our hotels in Maine we even close in the winter. We have a we have a really great security system. As soon as we see footprints in the snow, we go check. <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is, you you can actually tailor make your hotel to that community. Correct, and and because most of our hotels are resort hotels, they they cater to different clientels and different people at different times. This hotel, we're lucky enough to have a business community here. So during the week, we have a lot of business people here, but on the weekends, it's mostly the business people with their wives or girlfriends or families are you know vacationing. And so it it serves a lot of different purposes, and uh, we uh, have a lot of fun here, and that's the difference. Uh, you know, the, the the whole idea of hotels these days is more than a place to stay. It's 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 a whole experience. Well, let me ask you this, because, you know, I know the Marriott guys pretty well, and I'm astounded by this fact. And by the way, this is a fact. Marriott is opening one new hotel somewhere around the world every 14 hours. I would bet that that's not even right. Now that they own the Starwood brand, I would bet just half that. So, but but the point is, that's a lot. Yeah. They have, Marriott now represents 31 brands. Think of that. 31 different hotels are in the in brands, make up the Marriott system. Yeah. And we were, the, we were the 12th franchisee in the Marriott system 
1984. Now explain franchisee to my audience. Well, what it is is you own the hotel and you would be the franchisee. Doesn't have to be, you don't have to be the manager too, but we are the owner, we're, we're builder, owner, manager. So it's your management home. team, not a Marriott team. Correct. And there are certain standards and practices you have to have to perform to to keep the Marriott logo in terms of of uh, the kinds of soaps and the kinds of things that are in your rules and manuals. That's correct. I mean, it makes the Bible look small. <laughs> Is there something that they want you to do that you go really? There's always there's always a difference between what the brand might want and and what the hotel needs, and and there. Um, there's, there's conflict sometimes, but for the most part, we always look at it as the customer is the one that decides and, and is right, and the brand people are all for that. Bill Marriott is, I, I talked to him um, about a month ago, and I said, you know, Bill, we have a big problem. And he goes, what? I go, you, you're hurting your best customers. You're telling your best customers that they can check in early and you're telling us that your best customers can check out late. Well, in Florida, everybody wants to check in at 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning on the beach, and they don't want to check out till 4 or 5. We have to clean the room sometime. It's impossible to, to turn these people. You're creating a conflict for us. So you've got to help us deal with that. In a, in a business hotel, that's not quite the same thing. Right. But on a resort, you can see why everybody wants to check in as soon as they can, and they want to check out as late. And so, Bill, you know, and everybody, we we tackle the, the real-life problem. I have a solution. Rent the room out by the hour. <laughs> no, you don't like that, do you? <laughs> no, the customers don't like that. Some they, customers live on that, but we'll not talk about that. We're talking to Mike Walsh, the president of Ocean Properties. When we come back, I want to talk to you about what you look for in a hotel. Because you're looking to buy hotels, uh, not just operate them or manage them. You're looking to buy them, and you have such a varied portfolio. You own 190 properties across North America. So the question I was going to ask you is, you, you know, it's one thing to have cookie-cutter hotels where you're all things to all people, and, and you impose your brand and your design and your bed size and your phone size, all the different things that you look at in a hotel. It's another thing where you've got 190 distinct and different hotels, each with its own personality, each with its own design, each with its own set of, of benefits and challenges. Do you sleep? Luckily, I don't do most of the work. I have a, I have a <laughs> lot of great people working for us, and we've, we built it in small increments. Well, and this started uh, with your dad, right? Yeah, started with my dad. But when you think of it, uh, you know, over the last few uh, 50 years we've a added two or three properties a year that's how it's done it's not it wasn't done with buying uh, uh, 50 hotels or something like that we did buy a company uh, in uh, Canada that had uh, 22 hotels at one time that was a big mouthful that that was and uh, it was quite a thing my both my father who at that point in his life couldn't hear very good bought it from uh, a, the seller who couldn't hear very good. 
They were both <laughs> negotiating. They both thought the other one was talking about the same thing, and they said we both had a deal, and they weren't even close to a deal. <laughs> I had to, I had to take it and make it, so we had to write everything down that the talking part wasn't working. But in in the end of the day, uh, that was a family business, and we were a family business, and it and it worked out. So there was mutual well. respect there. Yes. Is there a hotel that you bought that you regretted buying? Not really. Uh, there of 190 hotels, there wasn't one stinker? Well, we built a, a lot of them. You built I, a stinker? Well, no, yeah, we built some of them. But <laughs> the, the, I, we built some that have been hard to deal with. Uh, probably maybe the uh, hotel we owned in the Bahamas was uh, one that uh, took a lot of time and a lot of effort and was a big problem. What was the name of that hotel? It was the Holiday in Paradise Island. And uh, it was a little bit interesting. When I first started, I was I was dealing with um, Resorts International. Sure. And then pretty soon, I was dealing with Donald Trump. And then I was dealing... Want me to stop right there? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it eventually um, worked down to uh, the rest of the people that own resorts. And, and eventually ended up selling it uh, to what is now Atlantis over there. Sure. Yeah. Well, that was the old days of Merv Griffin, too. I mean, well, Merv, I dealt with Merv, and yeah. we actually ran hotels with Merv over here. The one, uh, the double tree right down the street on 95 in Deerfield was his. And the uh, Merv Griffin was great. Donald Trump, in 1990, asked me if I'd vote for him if he ran for president. In 1990? In 1990. Can I ask you what your answer was? Luckily, I never had to answer because he never stopped talking long enough for me to answer. <laughs> Why do I believe that? Unbelievable. But it was, a, it, it, was a, it was a very nice hotel. The people in the Bahamas were, were uh, nice. It was just the... the uh, it wasn't a good business the, model. The environment wasn't a good environment uh, with the union there. They, they, you know, they weren't respectful and they weren't of of the ownership group. Well, listen, look at Atlantis. They've been having problems for a while now. Yeah, well, to to give you just a small idea, that if you went to the tiki barrel by the pool, you had to walk up and order your thing. They gave you a slip. Then you had to take it over, give it to the cook. The cook cooked it, and then you put your own French fries and stuff on the plate, and they charged 18% gratuity for that. And you had to do and, it. And I said, how about this? How about we just add it in and give you the gratuity, but don't pretend that the customers had to pay a gratuity when they got no service. And they'd say no. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, but, you know, like everything. So that's uh, a hotel that you dumped. Well, yeah, that is a hotel we sold. Okay, and, I said dumped, but yeah, that's okay. And, and what, uh, but the, and we sold it to Saul Kersner. And, and then later it became yeah, Atlantis. Yeah, and so, but. It was one of those things you just couldn't get, uh, couldn't get your arms around. Well, I want to come back and talk to you at another time because you got nothing but stories to tell. Hello, uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. My next guest survived Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> He's laughing uh, in Hell's Kitchen. But you actually won season nine. Correct. 
Wow. And you lived to tell the tale. I did. And of course, Gordon Ramsay, I, everyone, I, I want to do a meter on when I watch that show and just count the number of F-bombs. There's Am quite right? a few. Quite a few, yeah. But did he yell at you? Yes. And Come on, he ev- did. Everybody got yelled at, but it's very constructive. I looked at it as constructive criticism. And that's Paul Niederman, who's now the corporate executive chef at Salt 7. So there is life after, after Hell's Kitchen and, and Gordon Ramsay. There is. And, you got, and he was nice to you at the end, right? He's very nice to me at the end. But, you know, they have to, build, they have to break you down to build you back up. <laughs> well, listen, you worked at uh, BLT Steak in New York. Was that the Ritz-Carlton? No, I worked at BLT Steak in New York. It was on 57th between Lex and Park. But right. I was also at the one you're talking about in White Plains. Yeah. I traveled a lot with them. So I was in White Plains, Los Angeles, consulted on Vegas, opened BLT Prime at Trump and Durrell. I was in Atlanta, Charlotte. I did a summer in the Hamptons with them. So basically you're in the witness relocation program. Pretty much. Okay. I just want to make sure. Yeah. So, but now you're here and you're actually from Florida. I am. I am. I was actually born and raised in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, grew up in Cooper City. I, when I got done with BLT in New York, I had the opportunity to open up in Doral. Uh, I wanted to stay home. So I got partnered up with a couple of people up here in Delray in a restaurant that unfortunately didn't pan out. And then I kind of laid low for a while. And then the opportunity with salt came and it was a perfect marriage between us and them. Now your, your claim to thing right now is you're really into menu development. Yes. Right. So I love the psychology of menus. I, I've done stories on that for CBS News about the placement in menus, the psychographics of menus, what, you, what your eyes look at first, your gazing patterns, right? Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's a science. It is very, very much a science. And, you know, whether or not you list the prices with numerals or you spell it out or you never use the number nine, I mean, it depends on your price point, right? Exactly. Or you never end on an even number. You always make an odd number, things like that. Why? It's, it's price projected. It's, it's very subjective. So instead of... Saying something is forty dollars. If you say it's thirty nine, subjectively they think they're getting it for under forty dollars. It's or thirty one instead of thirty two. Or it's I can't explain it. It just works. But you do it that way. I do it that way, and it's been okay. Working. So that's actually menu design and menu placement yes. and and the psychographics of menus, right? Exactly. But then there's the actual food selection that goes into that menu. Correct. So let's talk about that. Okay. Um, because for me, I mean, you have to have at least one item in there that you know is going to be your biggest seller. Correct. Right. But it may not be your most profitable. Correct. Right? So wh- where's that fine line? So the fine line is, is, especially, and it's very true in the kind of the restaurant settings that I've been very accustomed to, which are steakhouses. So to hit... What's the most profitable steak at a steakhouse? None of them. <laughs> the most pro- are you serious? The most profitable steak at the steakhouse is the mashed potatoes. Explain. So things, so for example, if you are, if you get a ribeye, a baked potato, and an asparagus... For your meal, the percentage that I'm making on the steak and the percentage that I'm making on the asparagus is, let's say, the steak is at 45 percent and the asparagus is at 30 percent. And the potato is at five percent. But at the end of the meal, if you get all those three things, your meal was at a price point of, let's say, 34 percent, which is what my target is. So it's not so much everyone's going to go to a steakhouse and have a steak. But if you can get them to get one side and one appetizer at a lower percentage point, you, that's how you profit. So it's all on the sides. It's all on the sides. It's all on the lost leaders. It's, it's so, not, you're big, so you're sneaking in mac and cheese on me, aren't you? Absolutely. Every time. Every time. <laughs> and you know what? I do it. Exactly. See? You know it. 
But I, I used to think that you, you'd price your most expensive item in the upper right-hand corner, expecting that most people wouldn't buy it, and then the one you really want to sell right under it. Because people will look at that and go, no, but I'll take that one. That also That's also very true, too. Um, when I place out the menus for costing purposes, I'll put... I'll spread things around so that your eye goes everywhere. So I'll put, you know, a crab cake in the top left corner. I'll then position some of the steaks on the bottom left-hand corner. And then I'll put my big steak or my big specialty. The tomahawk. Would be on the right side. So your eyes have to graze across the whole menu. And then you'll see like, well, do I want the tomahawk or do I want the cowboy ribeye? Maybe I want to do the tomahawk, but maybe I want to do the, (laughs) maybe I want to do the sole. And then it's. Okay, question for you at Salt 7, right? Yes. What's the one item you put on the menu that you thought everybody was going to love and it tanked? And what's the one item you said, who's going to buy this and everybody wanted it? So the one item I put on the menu that I put on for the sheer fact of that we're in Delray, it's a beachier, it's a beachier community, so lighter fare. I put on a grilled eggplant rollatini with stuffed ricotta. And it tanked. No, and it flew out of the really? door in a steakhouse. One of my top selling entrees. Okay, and the one you thought was going to be great and it bombed? The one thing I thought was going to sell a lot more of based off of the previous menu mix is I do a uh, peppercorn crusted sirloin appetizer, which I thought, because we sold a lot of carpaccio before, and it didn't sell as well as I thought it was. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.